But we are in the last chapter of Luke, and in the next two or three weeks, by Thanksgiving, I intend to be done with Luke and begin uh, in a series in 1 Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're going to go through both books. Um, starting uh, before the beginning of the year, I may take a month off to give a short series um, as we celebrate our Lord's first advent. But here we are in Luke chapter 24, and I will be reading verse 13 through verse 33. I'm sorry, through verse 35. Verse 13 through verse 35. We will not get through the whole portion of Scripture today in the message, but we will get through a significant portion of it. And then we'll come back to it next week for a few other tidbits that are very valuable, I think, for us to see in this account. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know Him. And He said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Clopas answered and said to Him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And He said to them, What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and Certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find His body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But but Him they did not see. Then He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And He indicated He would have gone farther. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And He went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the Scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour, and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he's known to them in the breaking of bread. Right. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into our text this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to look in your word this morning. We come to it with a level of humility, recognizing that we are not up to the task in our intellect. We're really not up to it spiritually. And so we ask for your help, both in the communication of your word and also in the reception of it, that we might be willing to listen, to learn, and to be impacted by your truth. Lord, guard this time, that it might be a time of uh, your spirit time that gives you glory, and a time that edifies your saints. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Christ Jesus has been risen now. In our text in Luke 24, just to remind you that, it's been a month since I've been here. And the angels made this statement, remember His words. Everything that has occurred, His death, His burial, His resurrection, is just as He told you. Remember His words. And then we are told that suddenly they remembered His words. In verse 8 of chapter 24, it shares that. We come to an example of the necessity of remembering the Word of God and the power of the Scriptures. The road to Emmaus and the events that happened there are not incidental. They are very instructive. They are perhaps one of the most powerful illustrations of how off track we can get and how quickly we can get off track uh, once we abandon the words of God, the Scriptures. We have two of the disciples who have been following, not among the eleven, but but other disciples. We knew there were a great many of them. Uh, we we found after in the Book of Acts after uh, the ascension and uh, that there was time to replace Judas. That there were at least two men that had followed Christ from the very beginning and heard all of his words, and they were to choose between those two. Uh, as a replacement for Judas. There were other disciples. We knew that there were women that had been ministering throughout this time, and there were a number of others who had been faithfully following Christ over the months and even years of His ministry. Two of these men were on their way to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walking, and uh, we don't know why they were leaving. We do know that there was some movement uh, during the days after the resurrection, Some of it was instructed by Christ where he says, go to this place and go to that place, um, whether it be Galilee or other places around uh, about Jerusalem. But these two are going to make their way. They've heard the account. Uh, This is Sunday. The Sabbath is over. It's time you can travel back home. If they are from Emmaus, we don't know. The indication is that they are from Emmaus, that they were residents of that area for they're going to. Uh, give Christ a meal and, and want to have him stay with them the night uh, towards the end of this account. But we find them having heard all the news. 
They have heard the news. Christ's body is gone. They have heard the eyewitness account of the women who came back and who themselves had come to the point of remembering the words of Christ. And of course, He is risen. And the opportunity they have to go back and share that with the disciples. And we must conclude that these two men were among those who heard that account. They heard the witness of these women who remembered Jesus' words as they were instructed by the angels. Peter, of course, and we also know from John, John as well, runs, they see the empty tomb, and it says that they were marveling at what had happened. They were amazed, they were astonished, as were all the disciples. They were beside themselves. Unfortunately, they didn't remember His words. You see, we are sure that if we see it, and by the way, most Americans live this way, if I see it, I'll believe it. They saw it, and they still didn't believe. Because fundamentally, to trust Christ and to trust God in, for salvation is not about sight. It's not about your senses. It's not about your experience. It's about something much more significant, much more reliable than your senses. Yes, there are things more reliable than your senses. Than sight, than sound. When you hear these statements, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the way it looks. It's not the way it seems. Well, these are truths. These are adages for our time that, that you can't just Trust a book by its cover. Just because it looks exciting on the cover, it could be the dullest thing between those covers. You can't trust your senses. But there is something you can trust. We also find there's one other thing that you cannot trust that we're going to see here today on the road to Emmaus. So first of all, Peter sees it, sees the empty tomb, hears the eyewitness account, can personally verify that Jesus Christ is not in the tomb that He was buried. And he's amazed, but we don't find Him believing yet. These two men traveling on the road to Emmaus, it says that they were conversing. They walked together. Verse 14 says they talked of all these things which had happened. They're just rehearsing the events, and it was an exciting event. It was, and they describe it in very exciting terms. And it says this is the event of the, of the period. I mean, there, there's nothing else to talk about in all Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem knew it by now. The word had spread quickly and powerfully. And, and this was not just 11 people that knew about it. It was all over Jerusalem. Why was it all over Jerusalem? Because there was a Roman guard at that tomb. Because the high priest said, they remembered, he said he's going to raise again in three days, so let's put a guard in that tomb, let's keep the disciples from stealing him. And say he rose from the dead. And so when it actually happened, you better believe that a lot of people heard about it. In fact, these two men 
say all Jerusalem is filled with this knowledge. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, my friends, did not happen in a dark, hidden corner of the world. It happened in one of the premier cities of the Roman Empire. If you don't think that it was that, you need to study a little bit more of what Herod the Great had done to Jerusalem. It was considered equal in grandeur to Rome. It was one of the premier cities. And word had spread. And so there was a lot to talk about. There was a lot to converse over. But I want you to look at something that's very disconcerting when we get to verse 15. It says, while they conversed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And this is great. They're conversing and they're reasoning. See a problem? They're going to reason. They're going to use their human faculties, their human intuition, and they're going to try to evaluate their, what their senses tell them based upon their own human faculties. We are going to reason through this. And it was getting them nowhere. They were not believing. Because they were depending not upon the words of Jesus Christ. They were not depending upon a trust in the truth of God. They are trusting in their own intuitive abilities. And they walk and talk, and two men who had experienced the identical things, who had heard all this teaching of Christ for many, many months, were sitting here conversing, talking it through, and reasoning together, and they were getting nowhere. We have this idea, and it's not that our faith is unreasonable, but we have this idea that somehow we can employ human intuition as a primary source of knowledge and lead people to Christ. And it is not so. God never intimates that. In fact, human intuition, human reasoning, leads us away from God all the time. Why? Because it's stained by sin. You know, always elevate man. When man is left to reason for himself, he, his conclusion is either I am God or I am nothing. That's where it always takes you. One of those two places. Either it takes you into absolute despair or it takes you into self-aggrandizement. I couldn't use that word in Haiti, so I wanted to use it here. And yet, we feel that somehow we can come to people and reason them into the kingdom of God. Here were two men who were personal recipients of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, and their reasoning together did not lead them to truth. And those people that want to say that that is a significant way to lead people to Christ are missing the boat. Jesus Christ arrives... And we find God doing something very interesting. Um, he, he, and, and I want to talk about this a lot more next week because I, it's kind of off topic for this week. Um, but God comes, Jesus Christ shows him, comes and draws near to them and starts walking with them. You know, here he comes off the side path and he gets on the path and he's just walking along with them. 
And the Bible says that they were restrained from being able to recognize him. And we're going to discuss what that means next week a little bit, especially when we talk about what the future, where it says that, uh, that God's going to compel people to believe a lie and that, uh, they're going to, uh, that God can work in the minds of men in that fashion. But we find him uh, walking along beside him, and he asks him, he says, this is a strange conversation. What are you talking about? And why are you so sad? You're talking about very strange things. And by the way, Christian, you should talk about strange things. It should be just normal in your conversation to talk about strange things. You know, like life after death and heaven and, and God and, and Jesus and, and just things like that should just be in your normal conversation. These guys are talking about strange things. And he says, but the problem is you're sad. Which means that all their conversing, all their rehearsing of what they had seen, what their senses had seen, and what the testimony they had heard, all the reasoning that they were doing as they were walking along was not satisfying. It was not leading them to the joy of what they had experienced. And it only brought sadness. And we can see it in their reply to Jesus describing what they had hoped for. Look at, um, we're going to skip a little bit down. It says, um, verse 21, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What's implied there? Our hopes are dashed. Our hopes are dashed. We were hoping that, now, if you listen to this statement, we would insert some information that we would have as people of faith into that and say, well, that's, uh, that, that, that's a strong statement, you know, that they were believers. They had their hope that Jesus was the one who would redeem them. Well, that's a believer. That's a Christian. That's someone who is trusting in Jesus to redeem them. But you see... It wasn't a salvific faith that they're expressing, but a national expression of hope in their idea of redemption. Redeeming us as a nation, not redeeming me as a sinner. Big difference. And so they had their hope in Jesus Christ, and those hopes were dashed on the rocks, and their reasoning, they just couldn't get around it that this is, this is sad. This is, you know, everything was coming to this culmination, to this pinnacle of activity and, and excitement in Jerusalem. We have the, him riding in on a colt uh, into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday or whenever it was. And uh, we have him uh, teaching in the temple. We have the hordes coming in. We have him silencing the, the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law. We have him uh, exercising great authority, even raising from the dead, Lazarus. And there he is. That's Lazarus. He was dead three days. And there he is walking around. And there's this expectation. And suddenly, it was gone. And the things that they had anticipated it coming to be were gone. And so there was sadness as they reasoned together. I can almost imagine their reasoning. Well, is the Messiah going to be like Jesus? Is there someone else? Maybe he was the forerunner and 
we kind of got it messed up and maybe there's someone else who's after Jesus and who knows where their reasoning took them. This is not people who were despairing because Christ was in the tomb. This was the day He rose. And He wasn't to be found. And their reasoning still left them with a void, still left them sad, still left them in despair because human reasoning does not fundamentally lead us to God. It is not to be trusted. It does not fundamentally, automatically lead us to truth. And many of our philosophers want us to believe that. That a pure reasoning will always lead us to truth. That is not what God says. God says the ways of man are not my ways. The thoughts of man are not my thoughts. In fact, if anything, human reasoning leads us to anti-truth. And we should not trust it fundamentally until it has been infected by the truth of God's Word. Here comes Jesus. Now, if there's anyone that can match wits with any reasoning, any, any logic on earth, I think Jesus could have done it. But He didn't. He didn't try to match wits with these guys. He didn't try to explain to them. He wasn't dependent even on His own human intellect or His intuitive abilities. Here comes Jesus Christ. And they describe, and we're going to talk a little bit next week as well about describing who he was and all the events around it. Um, I think it's interesting that now Jesus is of Nazareth and Jesus is a prophet. In my text, they have capitalized that. I'm not sure that these two men thought of it as a capital P. He was a prophet, not the prophet. So in our Bibles, we have it capitalized, at least in my translation, is that the way it is in your Bibles, capital P, prophet? Because we know it is referring to Jesus Christ, but I don't know that in these men's minds that they meant it to be the prophet, capital P. I mean, they were probably still thinking of Jesus Christ. Well, he is another great prophet. Now he's dead like a lot of the other prophets. And they're trying to reason through this. What's God doing? It's not getting them anywhere. Here comes Jesus. In verse 25... The first thing out of his mouth after they give their account is, O foolish ones. You rely on your senses, your experience, and your intuition, your reasoning. You are a fool. If you are here today and say, if you can show it, and prove it, and demonstrate the logic of your faith, then I'll believe you, my friend, are a fool. You are foolish. To approach the things of God from that fundamental premise is error. Because it assumes, first of all, that you can measure God. It assumes that there is no faultiness in your thinking, there is no faultiness in your senses, that there is no fault in man. It is coming to God assuming that we are the perfect ones and that He has to satisfy our criteria. When the fact is, we know that our senses aren't trustworthy. We know it. 
That's why every carpenter carries around a level. He's pretty sure that's level, but I don't really fully trust my senses. I'll put this on there, and now the bubble tells me. And there's a couple of times that here's a 71-year-old, he's 72 now, 71 then, carpenter out there, and he says, that's level. I said, Larry, I don't think that's level. He says, that's level. I'm, and he get bubble on there. Well, it sure looked level to me. <laughs> our senses are faulty. And so is our intuition. So is our ability to reason. And when you sit there and say, when you satisfy my criteria, you are coming to God and saying, I am the measure of you. And that kind of pride will never bring you salvation. Rather, it is for man to come to God and say, I am faulty, I am weak, I am finite, and you are the measure of everything. And I don't measure up. And Jesus Christ says, you want to trust your senses, you want to trust your reasoning that leads you to sadness and despair, you're a foolish one. He goes on. You are slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now here's an area that we still get ridiculed for today. You believe in prophecy. You better believe it. A generation after generation of Israel didn't believe and they went into captivity, both of Israel and of Judah. They didn't believe. A guy named Pharaoh didn't believe and he lost all of his chariots in the Red Sea because he didn't believe what was spoken of the prophet Moses, Aaron. You can ridicule those who want to come to God's Word and say what it says is absolutely true. And all you're demonstrating is that you are unwilling to believe and that you have made yourself the measure of God instead of measuring yourself against God. You're depending upon your own reasoning. It is unreasonable to trust in words that are thousands of years old. Really? I find it unreasonable to trust in what I heard the news last night. When I was in Haiti, I never heard the news. Um, the only two things I ever heard that happened, um, somebody came and told me that Gaddafi had been killed. Um, and then, because Port-au-Prince is so sensitive to this, I also heard uh, that there was a large earthquake in Turkey. It's the only two pieces of news I had for three weeks. Um, but I also heard the rumblings in Haiti of what was going on in Haiti, um, which is very disconcerting. But we believe politicians. We believe the news. We believe your newspaper. There's an article out there on the board. It says that Sage and 89th Street are due for construction in December. There is no 89th Street, by the way. They meant to say 86th Street. That's why it's up there. And uh, that's this road right here. And um, if there's something not to believe, I would tend to not believe what men tell you today rather than what God told us thousands of years ago. 
that all the prophets spoken can be believed because it has come. And everything spoken by the prophets of God in the Old and New Testament has occurred just as declared. In fact, we can almost use some portions of the book of Daniel as a historical record of the Greek Empire. And it gives us a great guide to understanding the, the, what happened between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And we find that it occurs just as Daniel prophesied. So much so that textual critics come to God's Word and say it was written after the fact. There's no way anyone could be that specific. And so they conclude it was written after the events. Why do they conclude that? Because they're slow of heart to believe. They don't want to believe that God has a knowledge of the future. That God foreknows all things. And that He can declare that knowledge to those whom He chooses. They don't want to believe it. These men heard Jesus say, The Son of Man will go to Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed. He will be crucified. He will rise again the third day. They heard Him declare that. Why wouldn't they believe? And then Jesus Christ did what we desperately need to make our habit of doing in conversation with one another and in conversation with the world. It says, verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He chastises them for their foolishness in trusting their own reasoning. He chastises them for their unwillingness to believe their own prophets. He communicates to them that this is exactly what should have occurred. And I'll prove it to you. And he backs all the way up to Moses, which means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you hear Moses, that's the five books. He went right through there. This is a seven-mile trip, and they're not cross-country runners, okay? And so this is going to take more than an hour. And there they go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Moses and all the prophets. And he begins to expound to them, not only those, but that's where he starts. He starts with Moses and all the prophets. And he says he gets all the Scriptures and he goes through them and he just pounds them with God's Word. Here's the Scripture says this. The Scripture says this. The Scripture says this. The Scripture says that it will be a seed of a woman that, that the serpent will bruise his heel, but he'll crush his head. Don't you understand that the seed of the woman is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and that he will have an injury inflicted on him. He will strike his heel, but it will be a death blow to Satan. And there Genesis chapter 3 begins the revelation of God that there is a Redeemer. And that one who will come will be perfect, just as Moses required you to bring that perfect lamb, just as Abraham was required to bring that sacrifice. There would have to be a sacrifice who himself would be the Son of God who had to be perfect 
to be sacrificed not only for one man's sin, but for all men's sin to satisfy the righteous demands of God. That He would be a son, an only son, a unique son. As Abraham was told off for Isaac on that same mountain. Near where Christ was sacrificed. But don't you know that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin? It required a better sacrifice than that. And going all through the prophets, the the explanation, the demonstration of all that Christ came to do and what was necessary that He was born of a virgin. It was necessary that that occurred. That He was untainted by by sin from a father of human origin, that he would be, that it was necessary that he be 100% man and 100% God, that it was necessary for him to suffer temptation all points like we are yet without sin. It was necessary. It was necessary that he rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was necessary. Why? It was necessary that he die this death on a tree. Because the prophet said so. And it was necessary to be buried among the rich in a new tomb. The prophet said so. And it was necessary that he conquer sin and death by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of these things are necessary not just to redeem Israel as a nation, but redeem men from their sin. This is all the plan and working of God from the beginning all the way to this day. And this is done in your day. You should not be filled with sadness, but joy. But they aren't filled with joy yet. Not quite yet. For seven miles. What was the experience they had? Let's hear what they had to say. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit more. I'm sorry. Verse 32. They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? When you open the Scriptures for God for people, and you take God's Word and you confront them with it, whether it's the commandments, Ten Commandments, whether it's truth of God's Word, you put Scripture in front of people. You're doing the most powerful and effective evangelism ever, ever known to man whether it results in them coming to Christ or not, is irrelevant. God has promised that His Word will not come back empty. You distribute the Word of God, the truth of Scripture. God's promise is it will not come back empty. And part of that fulfilling that promise is that it moves in men's heart to be convicted of their sins. These men's heart burned as they heard Christ speak. They didn't know who this guy was. He was a stranger. And look at how their attitude changes. Their first attitude was, are you stupid? Are you, where have you been from? Are you blind? Have you, not, have you not heard what's going on? 
Are you the only one in all Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happening? Almost condescending towards this man. Until they hear the Scriptures. And then they're convicted. And their heart is burning within them. I want to share with you that reason, human intuition, doesn't have the capacity to do that. It doesn't have the authority to do that. Because all human reasoning fundamentally is circular, um, I can create my circles um, uh, around your circles. And I can deny your givens. But you see, when I'm confronted with absolute truth, which carries upon it absolute authority, whether I want to hide from that authority or submit to that authority, I must recognize it. And I might come to it and say, well, if that's true, oh, it's true. These men's hearts burned within them when they heard God's Word. And Jesus Christ simply expounds to them Here's what the Bible says. 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 How often do you say that in your conversations with people? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this. And actually quote what the Bible says. Not just make something up that you think is in the Bible. I've heard Christians do that. I'm like, no, robbing Peter to pay Paul is not in the Bible. Okay. I don't, one of these days I'd like to make a quiz of all the things that, and just to see if people can recognize what is really in the Bible and what is not. Uh, maybe I'll pull that on you one of these days. Of all the sayings that we think are biblical that are not. Well, we would confront people with God's Word because it has the power to burn men's hearts, to cause their hearts to burn with conviction. I am a sinner. I am a fool. I am not the measure of truth. There's an absolute standard. There is something to trust in. If only we would open the Scriptures for people. And that is why in every ministry of our church, um, we, we focus right here. I don't, and, and, and that's probably one of my frustrations during my time in Haiti is I found it very experiential. I preached twice and I listened once. Um, and uh, my, from listening to the radio and listening to them preaching, um, I saw a lot of emotionalism. We don't trust those agents because they're unreliable. Human affections like human reasoning and human senses are unreliable sources of what is truth. And just because you go away feeling wonderful or feeling great doesn't mean that you heard truth. In fact, it may mean you didn't. Every aspect of our ministry is the communication of God's Word. We want our children to be reading God's Word every day because it has the power to cause men's hearts to burn with conviction. 
It does. And so we have a program to get our children into God's Word every day. And all that our parents would make sure that happens is the number one part of parenting in your life is making sure your children have access regularly to God's Word. Because it can do a whole lot more work in them than any scolding or nagging or instruction or even discipline that you do in their life. Get them into God's Word. If they can't read, you read it to them. It has that kind of power. God's promises it will not come empty. Two men who knew all the truth, who had heard it from Jesus, who saw it with their own eyes, and they weren't ready to believe yet. And when you confront a man that says, if you can make it make sense to my mind, if I can see its effects, then I'll believe you're talking to a liar and a fool. Because even though they make sense, and even if it, uh, you make it in front of their senses, they still won't believe. They'll find a reason not to believe it. They will. And so what do we confront them with? The truth. God's Word. The Bible says, the Bible says, God said to Moses, God said to David, God said to the prophets, God said through Paul, oh, that we would know the Scriptures, that it would be a regular part of our conversation. These men were walking away from the greatest event in human history. Let that sink in on you. They were walking away from the greatest event in the history of the universe, talking about it, reasoning over what they had heard and seen, having already been taught by Jesus, and they still didn't believe. But they heard the Scriptures, and they were convicted. And then a great, wonderful thing happens. Their eyes are opened. They know who they're with. And there can be no delay getting things right. Towards the end of the day, they're getting near home. And and the day isn't completely spent. It's not dark. But they know it's late afternoon. They know how far the next village is on that road. And Jesus Christ, I'm just going to keep going. They said, no, come in with us. It's later in the day. Um, And we'll feed you. And he he allows them to... uh, Uh, convince him to do that. Uh, So it's late in the day, late afternoon, and once their eyes are open, once they are responsive to the truth that they have heard from God's Word, they get up that very moment. I don't even know that they ate. It says he broke bread with them, but it says as soon as as he's known to them, it says that they get up and they're, they're on their way. I keep turning the page of my Bible. I don't know why I keep doing it. Uh, They knew him. He vanished from their sight. And it says, verse 33, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Wow. Here they are walking away from the greatest event in history of the universe, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we worship on Sunday, not Saturday, because this is the greatest event, greater than creation, 
is Christ's resurrection. And so they're walking away from it and their reasoning is making them sad. They're saddened by the greatest event in human history because they're looking at it through men's eyes instead of God's truth. And Jesus Christ comes alongside them and says, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. And they're convicted. Now, just because you're under conviction doesn't mean you're going to get right with God. It means you have an opportunity to get right with God. And they responded by faith to their conviction by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. And they are going to take care of this now. And they get up that very hour, late in the day, don't go on to the next village, it's late in the day, you should sleep here, but it wasn't too late in the day for them to t- turn around and hightail it back to Jerusalem. Because you don't want to miss out on anything. Once you know the truth of the greatest event in the history of the universe, and you want to make it yours, you don't want to miss out on anything. They're going to hightail it right back to Jerusalem. I don't think they took a stroll. I think they probably, if they had an animal, they probably took it. They hiked, they, they went. Okay, in about an hour and a half, they could get seven miles if they really wanted to. And they come rushing in. And when they come in, they hear something exciting. And they hear it from the eleven that the Lord has risen and has shown himself to Simon. So God's been doing some things there in Jerusalem. And then they said, well, listen, on the road to our house in Emmaus, we met with Christ. But we didn't know it until he broke bread with us. As soon as they were taken out of the despair and sadness of human reason into the wonder and power of God's truth in His Holy Scriptures, and their eyes were opened to Jesus, their sadness was transplanted with joy. Their despair was transplanted with peace. And instead of walking away from the greatest event in the history of the universe, they became a part of it. And my brethren, this is still true today. Our responsibility before God is to confront men with the Bible. It's truth. Jesus Christ. We cannot reason men into heaven. That does not mean that our faith is unreasonable. I'm not implying that. I'm saying that human reason will not get you to God. It will make you God. It will give you absolute despair that you are nothing. One or the other. It will always lead you one way or the other. We must confront men with the Bible. It is their only hope. It alone has been stated, it will not return empty or void. That doesn't mean that everyone who hears God's Word is going to believe, but everyone who hears God's Word will be confronted with its truth and will have to come to a decision time in their life. And whether that means that they experience salvation, receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, which is, of course, our objective in sharing Christ's Word with them, that is our objective, 
or whether it means that they'll stand before the judgment seat of God with guilt all written all over them because they were told the truth and rejected it. Either way, God's Word is fulfilled with power. So when we share Christ in the skate park, the job site, in the World Life Clubs, in our services, in your home, you leave out God's Word. You've just extracted the greatest tool we have to share Christ with anyone. And so I want to challenge you to confront your family, your friends, your associates, your classmates, your relatives, your enemies, your co-workers, your neighbors, not only with the testimony of your life and your experience with Christ, not only with um, the evidence uh, of that God is and is at work, oh, that you will confront them with the Word of God. For it speaks with absolute truth. That men's eyes might be opened, their hearts might be convicted, that some might want to become a part of the family of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.